Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to begin by describing an etching by Rembrandt. Late in his life, he made a small etching about the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's small, but it's a powerful picture of faith. Now, this was not the first time that Rembrandt had used that subject. Actually, Rembrandt had made a grand painting of the sacrifice of Isaac early on in his career, earlier when he was famous. He had just moved to Amsterdam, he had married, he had rented a house in a fashionable part of the city, his halls were filled with students, his studio was filled with clients, and he painted on a scale that was large and with a vision that was grand. That painting of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it stands over six feet tall and over four feet wide. And when you see it, you can see the boldness of the faith of Abraham all wrapped up in the glory of Rembrandt. Isaac is stretched out on the ground, his chest is bared toward heaven, and his back is arched because Abraham is shoving his face down in order to bare the neck. Rembrandt has given us a hero of faith, larger than life, clothed in glory. But that's early in his life. Twenty years later, he returns to that subject. And when he returns to it as an artist, he is broke. And as a man, he is broken. His wife has died along with three of his four children. His first mistress stole his wife's jewels, pawned them off, and now sued him for breach of promise to marry. His second mistress is in the church courts on charges of adultery. His family life is in ruins, and it has hurt his painting and his reputation. And in less than a year, he will declare bankruptcy. And this time, he makes a completely different picture of faith. This time it is small. The etching is about six inches by five inches. And when you look at it, you can't really see the faith of Abraham at all. It's hidden in the love of this man for his child. Isaac isn't thrust out there on the ground. Isaac is kneeling beside the legs of his father, bowing his head into his father's lap. And Abraham's right hand doesn't hold a knife. No, Abraham's right hand is covering Isaac's eyes as if to hide him from death. And that would be his father's last and greatest blessing. Not a grand hero of faith larger than life, wrapped up in glory, but a small, weak man whose faith is humble and hidden in love for a child. So, two pictures of faith. <laughs> One, larger than life, bold, wrapped up in glory, and the other, small, weak, and hidden in love for a child. I start with that contrast 
Because for me, it captures something that's going on in our gospel reading this morning. In the gospel reading, Jesus has made his second passion prediction in the gospel of Mark. And after each of the passion predictions in Mark, the disciples argue with one another about discipleship. And it makes sense. How do you follow a dying Savior? What does that look like? That's the question the disciples struggle with every time Jesus predicts his passion. They struggle with it then and we struggle with it now. How do you follow a dying and rising Savior? Well, for some, the answer is grand, larger than life, a picture of faith and discipleship that's wrapped up in glory. And that's the attitude of the disciples in the text. Jesus has just predicted his passion and the disciples argue with one another about greatness. Jesus has just spoken about suffering, and the disciples talk to one another about glory. Jesus is coming into the world to die, and the disciples are striving to rise above the world and rule. And this conversation soon manifests itself in action that is bold and glorious. The disciples come across a man who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they tell him to stop to stop because he is not following us. As if the only people who could use Jesus' name would be the people who followed them. They come across parents bringing their children to Jesus and they turn them away. They come across a rich ruler, a rich young man who uh, is walking away from Jesus empty because he can't leave the things of this world and Peter pipes up and speaking for them says, Behold, Lord, we have left everything in order to follow you. Again and again and again, the disciples manifest faith by separating themselves from the world as the only ones who can use the name of Jesus, the only ones who can hear his teaching, the only ones who have left everything in order to follow him. Of course, that's all in the future. Right now, it's, it's just a, a conversation. And Mark actually doesn't even give us their words. We don't know what they say. And that's okay because I think we all have had those conversations. They sound pretty holy at first, like a, a, a conversation about worship and how God comes and gives us his gifts in worship that, that turns into a discussion about chapel and how God comes here every day to give his gifts, which then turns into an argument about chapel attendance where suddenly we discover that the worship of God is being used to measure our faith, to separate us from one another so that there are those who really love God and there are those about, well, well, we just really don't know. It sounds like a, a conversation about theology, a good conversation about theology, discussing the exegetical complexities of a text until all of a sudden you realize that you're the only one talking and you're much more concerned that they realize how smart you are then they understand God's word. These conversations are hidden in the dorms 
in a small group around a lunch table. Sometimes we're not even using words. Sometimes it's just a glance you throw somebody when that student raises his hand. They're hidden, but they are deadly. They will rip apart this community. They will cause you to use the very word of God, the work of God, the worship of God, to set yourself apart and tear apart this community and then piously bemoan how fractured we are as a community. Well, go figure. What a blessing. What a blessing to have this gospel read this day, this early in the quarter, because Jesus offers us a completely different picture of faith. It's small. It's small, but it is powerful. Powerful enough to prevent us from walking into that future. As we separate ourselves from other, Jesus comes down and stands by them. As we try to rise up into heaven, Jesus comes on down to earth. He comes into this community and he finds, he finds the least in this place, the most despised, the weakest, the one that we would all look down on and use to elevate ourselves. He finds that one, drags him into the middle of our world, embraces him and loves him. He finds that guy who attends Caldy much more than he attends chapel, and Jesus brings him into the center of your world, embraces him, and willingly dies for him, and then says to you, come, follow me. Mark tells us that Jesus took a child and put the child in the midst of them. Now, we don't know if it's the child is a boy or a girl, and I kind of think that's the point. You see, children were a very low social status. Jesus enters a divisive argument about greatness, and he chooses the one thing everyone could agree on, and that is the least. This child is the least, and Jesus embraces that child and says that faith is loving, serving, seeking out, receiving the least. What a blessing. To have this text. Now, at the time, it was puzzling to the disciples. These gestures were a mystery until that day when Jesus finally and fully embraced the least, becoming the crucified one, rejected by the world, rejected by religious leaders, rejected by his own disciples, rejected by the Heavenly Father, and yet with arms outstretched fiercely and faithfully holding on to every last sinner so that those who are grasping for glory might receive the riches of the kingdom freely from him. Jesus silences our arguments about greatness by revealing to us a picture of the radical mercy of God. When you are struggling to make a name for yourself, Jesus freely gives you the only name that really matters. You are a child of God. Your heavenly Father reaches out his hand and hides you from your eternal death and in Christ names you his son, his daughter. Jesus is not about scattering people. He's about gathering disciples into a community. 
A community that is one because he is hidden there, humble and found in our loving service to one another. Dr. Jeff Cloa once described this text from Mark, and he said that it was the poor man's passion prediction in Mark. <laughs> and he's right. There are three passion predictions in Mark, and when you look at this one in comparison to the other two, this one is quite impoverished. In the other passion predictions, you have this great detail about the passion of Christ. In the other passion predictions, you have these bold, memorable rebukes of Jesus saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan, asking James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? In this one, you have just this general statement of his death and, and, and then not much teaching at all. Just him embracing a child. It's not a, a painting that's large and bold, declaring glory to the world. Now this is small small enough to be etched on your heart. This poor man's passion prediction, like, a, like an old man's etching, why it gives you the riches of the kingdom, a dying Savior, humble and hidden, but here, here, every time you reach out and love the least. Amen.